0: How should we teach kids about communism? Why is our food festival and so many events here so expensive? And is Latin America backsliding into its old repression? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll discuss our latest history education controversy and we'll ask, if we teach the evils of communism, shouldn't we include fascism? We'll also talk a little, okay, vent a little, about how unaffordable many South Florida events have become for, well, average South Floridians, including this week's South Beach Food and Wine Festival. And we'll examine how the left and the right are taking Latin American human rights back to the bad old days. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett welcome to the south florida roundup on wlrn bienvenidos bienveni benvindo if there's one subject that touches a raw nerve in south florida it's communism latinos are the majority population in miami-dade county and a sizable cohort in broward palm beach and monroe counties as well And communism, whether it's the Castro dictatorship in Cuba, Chavismo in Venezuela, Sandinistas in Nicaragua, or Marxist guerrillas in Colombia, is considered the evil that drove so many of them into exile here. Now, bills moving through the state legislature want to require Florida's public schools to teach kids about the evils of communism as early as kindergarten. It would join other mandated subjects, such as black history and the Holocaust. The question, of course, is, if we're going to include communism in that mix, should we not also include evils from the other side of the spectrum, such as fascism? Another big concern, how do you teach political philosophy to kindergartners? And should we even be doing that? So is teaching about communism a proper civics pursuit, or just more culture war in our classrooms. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to tackle those questions is University of Miami History and Cuban Studies professor Michael Bustamante and Andy Gomez, the former director of UM's Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies, and the author of a children's book about Cuba titled Lessons from Abuelo. Michael, Andy, always great to have you both on the
1: show. Good to be with you, Tim, especially with my colleague, Michael Rosamante.
2: Thanks, Tim. Good to be with you.
0: Michael, I, I want to start with you, actually, regarding the bill, two bills, actually, one in the House and one in the Senate, both of which cleared committee this week, that would mandate teaching about, as I said, the evils of communism. Their Republican sponsors say the impetus behind them is that too many American youths today view communism in a positive light. Too many kids wearing Che Guevara t-shirts, that sort of thing. And we need to correct that, they say. Michael, as someone who spends as much time as you do with students, do you share that concern that a lot of young people in America think communism is a good way to go?
2: I think putting it that way, Tim, is to um, sort of flatten the diversity of the student population to flatten the diversity of um, sort of the things that get taught or are presumed to get taught in U.S. university classrooms, or in this case, in K to twelve classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sort of political engagement and activism varies enormously on campuses, depending on the culture of different student bodies and different universities. Um, you know, maybe it's a function of having taught at two institutions in South Florida, FIU, and now at UM um, where perhaps larger portions of the student body are sensitized to some of the, the, the the darker sides of that, of that history. Um, this is not so much an issue here, uh, in South Florida as it perhaps is, is elsewhere. Um, but I'm frankly, um, concerned that the impetus for this is not coming from really, Uh, sort of a genuine preoccupation about sort of educational outcomes as as much as it is a product of the culture wars that we're we're enmeshed in.
0: And we're we're, going to get to those, definitely. But either way, Michael, is there a feeling among historical scholars like yourself that teaching K through 12 students about the evils of communism is an educationally, if not morally, that that it's as educationally, if not morally urgent as teaching them about, say, slavery?
2: You know, I'm I'm not going to get into the business of sort of deciding which things are more or less important to teach. I think the trouble here is when you sort of establish a priority that it's important to teach uh, about the history of you know X subject, the history of, of global communism in this case. Yeah. Um, you know, as your lead-in suggested. Well, okay, if we're if we're mandating that as a curricular requirement, why not you know any number of other. Um, kind of historical ideologies or experiences that involved enormous injustice, right? And I I think when it's framed also from the get go as the evils of communism, that's not to say that there aren't evils in the history of communism in the world, but it suggests kind of an ideological kind of overloading of the subject matter from the start that again suggests to me that what folks are interested in doing is less sort of teaching critical thinking and having critical dialogue and more sort of imparting um, sort of a one way direct transmission yeah. This is bad, um, period. Um, and, you know, as you know, Tim, and as we've talked about, this harkens back to sort of former modules that of, of teaching this kind of thing in Florida and around the country right. that go back to the Cold War.
0: Yeah. And I do. And as I said, we do want to get into that a little later in the discussion. Um, Andy, you wrote lessons from abuelo for your four young grandsons, your buddies, as you call them on Facebook. All right. But you mentioned to me that one of the hardest parts of that exercise was explaining communism to them. You you said you even consulted child psychologists about the best approach, the best way to approach that part of the Cuban drama. What caveats did you take out of that experience that you would pass along to state legislators and educators and anyone who will be involved in this if these bills pass and get enacted?
1: Well, Tim, you know, uh, in writing the book, it uh, was probably one of the toughest things I've done bring it myself down uh, to teach to young kids. Uh, As you said, my four grandsons from kindergarten all the way to fourth grade, uh, I did consult with uh, psychologists and human development uh, psychologists as well as to how I should try to explain not only the history of Cuba, but the good and the bad and let parents and grandparents give their own interpretation. Right. I, I, if I may, I, I have to correct you because I have yet to sit down with my grandchildren and talk about communism directly. Right. Okay? Right. I don't think, I don't think it's very responsible to assume, actually, I want to call it irresponsible, Assume that we can teach kindergarten students about communism. Yeah. I mean, I have always been a proponent that we need to teach in our K 12 systems and having served as Under Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, I dealt with more civic education that we should not wait until the seventh grade and we should teach comparative politics in high school. Mm-hmm. So the students have an understanding of the different forms or political systems that exist in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, br- but, you bring up a good point. I don't think slavery or the Holocaust, for example, is, are, are taught to kindergartners. So is it a good idea to thrust a subject as complex and fraught as communism on them at that age?
1: But more important, Tim, I have to tell you, I don't know of any school of education at any university across the United States that prepares teachers to go teach kindergartens and teach about communism. Yeah, <laughs>
0: right, right. Uh, I really don't. No, my my wife's a teacher, and I don't. She has a master's degree. I I don't recall that being part of her homework. No.
1: And I think the point that the Florida legislature is missing: the psychological development of children is extremely important. Let me give you an example. Like I said, my youngest, he's in kindergarten. I cannot sit down with my youngest and talk about actually communism but i can talk about the history of cuba
0: right
1: and in my book i do use the word communist to explain the fidel castro when he admitted it that he was a communist yeah but i don't go into the theory what the psychologist made it very clear to me as i prepared this book that i needed to concentrate on facts i needed to concentrate on stories i needed to concentrate in illustrations and make them simple.
0: Right. And Mike Michael, as a professor, how difficult is it to teach a complicated and fraught subject like communism to college-age students, let alone <laughs> kindergartners?
2: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're struggling often just to get kids off of chat GPT and, you know, to, to actually <laughs> right. read, read the things that are assigned. There, there's my, there's my old man joke for the day. Right. Um, no, I, it's, it's an incredibly challenging thing. I mean, I think teaching comparative political philosophy, comparative uh, political systems and history histories is is not easy. Um, I think uh, this is maybe a bit off topic, but I think there's been such a, an emphasis on STEM in the last few years that, you know, many history departments are you know struggling to get students interested in those kinds of subjects that are important. And I think that 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 connects to the wider sort of civic education piece. But Michael, um, but,
0: oh, go, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: No, I was just gonna say to Andy's point, you know, I'm also a parent of a of a four-year-old. And and uh, um, you know, I I have talked to my son at length about Cuba as the place where his grandparents were born and and his uh, his grandfather was born. Uh, and that's very important to me. But you know, I, I I have not in my sort of wildest dreams thought of kind of injecting a discussion of sort of political philosophy. And right. and maybe that's not what the planners of this curriculum have in mind. There's this language in this bill about sort of always at a developmentally and educationally appropriate way. Yeah. But what does that mean? I, I really well, that, don't... that
0: that was the, that was the next question I wanted to ask you. Let's say hypothetically that you did have to teach the subject of communism to element elementary school students here, like your child what would be the most important things you'd want to try to get across to them that you think they'd actually be able to absorb?
2: I don't know, Tim. Um, it's a hard question for me to answer because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a college professor, right? And yeah. so I, I, I honestly don't have the training in sort of child psychology and things like that mm-hmm. to, to think about what would be required at that level. Okay. But I, I, I'll tell you one thing that's, that's important to me as a parent. Um, when it comes to sort of civic education, history education in general, that I'm certainly going to be watching out for. Um, history is not, you know, h- history is full of facts, but history is also a science of how we interpret those facts. And it's not even a science, Correct. it's a combination of science. Correct. And Yeah. And I, and I worry when history is taught, whether it's about communism or, or anything else in a way that this this is the conclusion that you have to draw because a yeah. that tends to that tends to push students away and make it not interesting and sort of make people think that history is just something to sort of be memorized in facts and you can sort of throw it out the window mm-hmm. history is about interpretation and we don't get to to students uh to be able to develop those skills um with with just sort of you know shoving yeah. down their throats uh, you know mm-hmm. certain kinds of uh morality right. lessons
0: this is the South Florida Roundup it. on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the Florida legislature's efforts to require public schools to teach about the evils of communism. I'm talking with the University of Miami's Michael Bustamante and Andy Gomez, author of the children's book on Cuba titled Lessons from Abuelo. Call us at 743 WLRN, eight hundred seven four three nine five seven six or tweet us at WLRN. Andy, you were just gonna weigh in on that that last point Michael made.
1: Yeah, you see Tim. For instance, and you see my book, I concentrate at the beginning in introducing words like freedom and what it meant to take freedom away, mm-hmm. liberty. I mean, those are words that you can teach and have children try to interpret them and you talk to them. I'll give you an example. For instance, again, when my four grandchildren uh, one day walked into my office here at home, of all the things that i have in cuba around me one of them turns to me and says oh that the bad guys are the guys with the beer no <laughs> not necessarily right because if they walk away with the idea that anybody that has a beer is a bad guy
0: right or who wears we a beret a and smokes a cigar yeah
1: <laughs> precisely so you know to michael's point, i think we have to be extremely careful yeah how we introduce the stuff but again going back There's no one in a school of education that is going to teach kindergarten that is prepared to teach a course on communism.
0: Right. Michael, um let let's let's go back to a point you were starting to make earlier about the unavoidable political undercurrents of this. As the bill sponsors have pointed out, decades ago during the Cold War, Florida mandated a high school course called Americanism versus Communism. Its tone seems to have been fairly McCarthyite in the sense that there was some political indoctrination there. The idea that anything that's liberal or to the left on the spectrum is communism. Um, that was obviously all has been criticized, but is there a fear that requiring K through 12 students to be taught the evils of communism could present the same slippery slope, the idea that liberal or Democrat, for that matter, equals communism? Yes,
2: yeah, Tim, it's a good point. I mean, I think it's important to sort of contextualize this discussion to within a broader onslaught of legislative initiatives at the state level that have affected education at the K to 12 level and at the university level. Um, that range from things like the so-called, you know, still stop woke act to, uh, you know, eliminations or or not eliminations, but but new restrictions on tenure at public universities and a whole, and a whole sort of spate of things. I mean, we cannot separate this new push uh, on the legislative front from that wider sort of political and cultural war that we're in about the content of education in this state. Um, that's not a new conversation to be having in Florida or at the national level. There the 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 saga of sort of history wars or wars over um what's taught in history classrooms is as is, is as old as as any of us um you know on this on this radio program. Um so I think that's I think that's just important to keep in mind. And I and, and again, you know, for me, because of that context, this seems so sort of politically and ideologically um sort of weighted in its origins. That, um, you know, think about sort of the way that the term communism has been sort of, um, uh, I would argue, weaponized um, in the context of recent electoral campaigns. I mean, it is difficult to sort of separate this kind of initiative from the wider, incredibly divisive political climate that we're in. And so from an educator's perspective, you know, that certainly raises the alarm bells for me.
0: We have on the line Donald from Hialeah. Uh, Donald, you'd like to weigh in on this subject. Uh, Welcome to the South Florida Roundup.
3: Yes, can you hear me? Yes,
0: we can. Thanks.
3: Great. Well, um, I'm enjoying the discussion, but um, what concerns me and what I find objectionable is the the use of the word evil in communism. For example, now I'm not a young man, but in 1966 and 11th grade, we learned about economic systems, one of which was communism. And we also learned about capitalism, how to define it. And, And in those terms, communism was everybody contributes to the government, and the government takes care of everybody because everybody because you're, that's how the structure works. The evil part are the people that lead it, and call it communism, and not and do not take care of the people. Right. It's not communism itself; it's the people that lead it.
0: Right. So we, and that's so, a, that's yeah. a that's a nuance that you're right that should probably be uh, you know taught if 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 this uh, gets enacted. Andy, in the in the just the minute we have left here, uh, I, I wanted to ask you. Is is this really not so much about communism or fascism? It's 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 really about s- extremism. I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, that you are an exile not from Castro's Cuba but from Pinochet's Chile, a right wing military dictatorship. Would you want Florida to mandate teaching the evils of right wing military dictatorships in Latin America or or anywhere in the world as a result?
1: Absolutely not. unless less and kindergarten. You know, very quickly, Tim less. Year, I was invited to present my book in one of the schools in Hialeah where they had the largest amount of children, Cuban children that came across the border. I had not only did I present them in Spanish, but I had to be very careful on how I presented to them the concept of democracy. Yeah. Because they really, you know, this you got to feed them very slowly. We should concentrate mm-hmm. in building. A, a larger civic society. When you take a look in uh, in the United States, right. the small percentage of people that are voting. This is what we should try to concentrate in right. teaching our children about democracy and the importance of sustaining that democracy. Yeah. So building a strong civic society.
0: No, that's a, that's, a, that's a great point to end on, Andy. Thanks. Andy Gomez is a former director of the University of Miami's Cuban and Cuban American Studies Institute and the author of a children's book about Cuba, Lessons from Abuelo. Michael Bustamante is a professor of history and Cuban studies at the University of Miami. Many thanks, as always, to you both.
1: Excellent. Good to talk to you,
0: John. Still to come. Why do even South Florida community events now cost an arm and a leg? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Ah, February in South Florida. Cooler temperatures, drier air. Paradise, right? For our weather, maybe, but not our wallets. February is balmy, but these days it's also pricey. Look around at some of South Florida's marquee winter events, starting with the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, which opened yesterday and runs through Sunday. In 23 years, it has become the largest bash of its kind in the country, and that's, of course, something we admire but it would be nice if it were also something most of us could afford. If you wanted to go to yesterday's Burger Bash with Rachel Ray, $275. Dinner tonight with the Great American Baking Show winner Mashama Bailey, $325. So why does a local food festival feel like a -a Mar-a-Lago campaign fundraiser? Ditto for other events like last weekend's Coconut Grove Arts Festival. Entrance fee alone, $35. And you want to see Lionel Messi play soccer for Inter-Miami? The cheapest ticket for this week's season opener was $130. A good seat, 10 times that much. How South Florida's notorious wealth gap now seeped into our community outings? Or am I just being a cheap native Midwesterner? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Few veteran journalists here observe these South Florida foibles more sharply than the Miami Herald's Linda Robertson. She joins me now to discuss, well, whether Burger Bash is worth $275. Linda, always great to have you with us.
4: Great to be here, Tim. Thank you.
0: I want to start here, Linda, by playing this clip from local CBS4's interview with the founder of the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, Lee Schrager, who more or less corroborates our complaint the festival is not inexpensive it's incredibly expensive it's just an expensive
2: event to bring in over 600 people we have ground transfers we have insurance we have marketing we have building you know we build a village on the beach we build an olympic village on the beach and that's incredibly expensive Mm -hmm. so yes it's expensive i never ever make light of that and you know i wish it could be more affordable
0: Linda, after hearing that, I guess I could say, Your Honor, I have no further questions for the witness. But you and I do have more questions. So let me ask you, after hearing that, what's your reaction, not just as a Miami journalist, but as a Miami resident? Well, I
4: think what's happened with with the Food and Wine Festival has always been expensive. Yeah. And I have never been a patron of it myself because I just can't afford it. Um But I think it is illustrative of what's happening, you know, throughout our community um, with prices for everything that we who have lived here, in my case, since 1972, um, we just can't afford to go to these things anymore. We really have to pick and choose. Yeah. And I understand what Lee's saying that this is, you know, just the staging of this thing. Sure. Overhead and things of
0: that nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. Um, But... um, They're also, you know, I mean, they're catering to supply and demand, and they're obviously going to get as much out of it as they can. So if you're going to go to that event, you really have to um, narrow down perhaps like the grand tasting, which used to be, I think, $75, and now it's $175. Yeah. So um, I guess it depends on how much you like really good food and wine right and, and um where you want to eat it
0: but in the larger picture linda what, what to your mind is the biggest problem with the fact that an event like the sobe food and wine festival is charging the likes of 300 just to get through the door
4: yeah i think we're you know i mean there's plenty of examples of this inflation um throughout uh, you know every major city um for example, the Coconut Grove Arts Festival, which used to be free, yeah. um, now costs $35 just to walk through the door. And yeah. you're going there to purchase art. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Art Basel. You know, that used to be free. yeah, And now I think it's $75 to $100 just to go to the main fair. Yeah. And then all the satellite fairs now charge you $25, $50. Bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's and, look, and let's look at some other just examples. The door again.
0: Yeah, let's look at some other examples. The Miami Open tennis tournament. A decent seat is three hundred and seventy-five dollars. I mentioned what it costs to see Messi's Inter Miami play here now. um And while I realize, you know, as you mentioned, thirty-five dollars for the Coconut Grove Arts Festival, that may not sound that exorbitant in comparison. But then you also have to consider that a family of four is looking at an almost one hundred and fifty-dollar tab just for the right to stroll around. Um, we can blame an inflation and overhead as Lee Schrager, uh, you know, did there in that clip, but is there something else at play here that you think we should be mindful of, or is this just, just a problem that really has no explanation?
4: Well, um, and as far as the, the, uh, these sporting events go and some of the, well, all of these events, I went to the tennis tournament two years ago. Um, and it was $40 for parking you know, you know, a parking lot that was vast and, um, there were, you know, more than enough parking spaces. Mm -hmm. And I almost turned around and left. I was like $40 just to park, you know, in addition to my, my ticket. Um, so I think another reason why we're seeing this here is that a, this is high season, right? Sure. And high season is obviously, this is a Mecca for, uh, People who live elsewhere and don't enjoy this—we're having incredible February um, weather here. Yeah. Um, so every, I think people tend to price gouge, you know, when um, when when it's high season and when they can, you know, there's higher demand. Mm-hmm. So the, I think there's some price gouging going on, and then I think there's the much larger question, Tim, of what's happened? Like, who lives here now, and who visits here? Mm-hmm. I think the demographics have changed and it's a much more wealthy place yeah. to live and visit and so that notorious wealth gap that you've you've mentioned mm-hmm. is i think it's growing bigger and bigger yeah, and yeah, so more of these events can
0: cater to these uber wealthy people yeah let's let's get into that a little bit i as you you know i mentioned at the outset that this sort of thing just really tends to good. showcase rather than remedy the wealth gap that Miami and South Florida are so notorious for have these events, organizers seem to have forgotten that not everyone here lives on Fisher Island. I mean, what's their mindset these days, do you think, in that regard?
4: Well, I I think their mindset is get it while you can, you know, and uh, um, supply and demand. If people are willing to pay, you know, $375 uh, for a, a wine and food event, then, you know, I'm going to charge it. Now, that's a big fundraiser as well. But Oh, sure. And Um, and yes.
0: And and to be fair, we should point out that the proceeds from events like that at the SoBe Wine and Food Festival go to to a large extent, go to um, the uh, the School of Hospitality at Florida International University. And that is a good thing, obviously.
4: Right. But I I do think it's you know, there's. There's some greed involved here. There's some uh, recognition of the fact that we've had a huge influx of very wealthy people from Chicago, from New York, York. um, from California. And they, to them, this is nothing and they can afford it. So why not charge? And um, so the local guy gets screwed, you know, Oh, well. Um, I think what we have to do as local residents is we just have to be a lot more choosy and a lot more savvy in our choices. Like, I can't afford concert tickets anymore. Mm-hmm. So I take advantage of the new world symphony offers these incredible wall casts, yeah. which are free. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You have, you have, you uh, have I can't, I can't there, afford so. to go out to eat, you know, <laughs> right. most places. Right. So um, I'm doing more like, you know, uh, getting together with friends and just having a potluck or something.
0: No, not good good point. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. I'm talking with the Miami Herald's Linda Robertson about the rising cost of festivals, games and other events here. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. Linda, I want to I want to stay with that point you've been making about, you know, about demographics, etc. Et Let me ask that that question and perhaps, or pose it in perhaps a more provocative way. I've covered Cuba, for example, for more than 30 years, and one of the big complaints about life there is what's called tourism apartheid, meaning the nice stuff on the island is set aside for the wealthy tourists, while the rest of us get the leftovers. I am certainly not comparing South Florida to communist Cuba, of course, but does it sometimes feel here that we've created our own brand of tourism apartheid by making what should be accessible local events so inaccessible to all but wealthy tourists and, and the others that you were mentioning before?
4: Definitely. And um, I mean, this is a, you know, the tourism hub. That's, you know, part of why we exist is, you know, real estate and tourism, basically. Um, so you can't blame um, some of these events that occur during our very fleeting winter season um, for getting as much as they can um, while we have, you know, all these people visiting and they, and they're on vacation and they're, they're ready to splurge and spend money. Um, so it doesn't bother them as much as those of us who live here 365 days a year. Uh-huh. But um but yeah, I, I I know what you mean by that tourism apartheid idea because um, you you know in Cuba like um, now that their tur- tourism industry has grown so much, um, you know they used to have stores exclusively for the for the tourists and the visitors, and then the regular stores, grocery stores, had like nothing on the shelves mm-hmm. for the for the people who live there. Um, so here I think, and I also think Tim, it's part of just this. What's happened here, you know, since COVID, especially like rents have doubled, home prices have doubled, you know, property insurance is, is unaffordable. Um, It's just because I think it's becoming, Miami's becoming more and more of a place for the uber wealthy. Yeah. And I think over time, um, you know, with sea rise and uh, insurance costs pushing people out, we're going to see more of an outflux. Mm-hmm. of the natives and the long timers and what's going to be left here is going to be like the super rich and the people who serve them
5: yep
0: uh we have elaine on the line from miami um and she's got some suggestions for things that are affordable uh, in particular one elaine welcome to the south florida roundup what uh what, what do you want to tell us about
3: thanks so much i just wanted to tell you that um in response to the the Comment that uh, concert tickets are getting uh, unaffordable. Um, orchestra Miami, which is a local excellent professional orchestra, offers a whole series of free concerts. Most of what they do is for free, actually. And they have a Beethoven on the Beach series coming in March, which is free concerts uh, in Pinecrest, Miami Beach, and Miami Beach. So you might want to look into that. Um, I love their stuff.
0: They're excellent. No, great suggestion. Thanks very much, Elaine. I appreciate that. Uh, so, Linda, I mean, she she sort of speaks to a point you were making before that it, it looks like you know if you're a South Floridian, just 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 a regular Joe like you and me, you're 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 gonna have to do your homework to find stuff that 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 you can afford, right?
4: Yes, and then you find stuff that is, you know, that's reliably good, and they are. The other thing that I think is difficult about a lot of these events is, let's face it, it's a pain in the neck getting to them and parking at them. So
6: um,
4: that's become a big problem, especially in January, February, March, when the traffic is just, you know, Mm -hmm. ungodly. And so I think what you maybe what you try to do is is come up with like a, a list, like a repertoire that you you can turn to when you're looking for. Nice things to do, especially outside um, during this time period, when some of these other things are just going to be relegated to to those who can afford them. Right. And and look for things that um, that are really fun. And and I think that also gives an opportunity to some of these other um, organizations that are trying to do things mm-hmm. uh, for a reasonable price, and, and um, they or they're trying to do things for free, um, and they're trying right. to reach. That audience,
0: but in the bigger picture, what sort of effect does this have on the psyche of a community? Our, our engineer here, Peter Mertz, has has pointed out that you know you know there are a lot of of arts arts organizations here that are worrying about declining audiences. But yet their ticket prices don't seem to reflect the fact that they they're trying to lure uh, cohorts like younger audiences in, um, you know, culturally, socially. How, what kind of effect does that have on the psyche, psyche of a of a sort of, you know, a young community like ours?
4: Um, well, I think there's the one on the one hand. I think the psyche is that, um, and I've heard this from a lot of my, my old friends from back in high school days, they're leaving. Um, They just, you know, they, they're leaving to other parts of Florida or other States um, because they just can't afford it here anymore. They don't feel like they belong here anymore. And some of their favorite places and things to do um, are just out of reach. So I think that is a negative effect on our psyche. Like where did my hometown go, you know, and what is there left here for me? Mm -hmm. And also I think for the younger people and for also like these younger, younger artists um, it's going to be a struggle for them to, to get the platforms that they need um, and to make the living that they need to, you know, to keep going. Right. So um, that's why I think things like, you know, the new world symphony, you know, they, they're trying to, um, they're trying Mm. to nurture young talent and also they're trying to open up their offerings to a wider audience. They're doing all kinds of different things now and less expensive. They have $10 mm-hmm. tickets for some of their yeah. um, concerts. They have the free wall cast. So Got I think it. that's an example of an organization that's that's yep. really trying to well, keep the arts alive and yeah. make it affordable and help these yeah. young people grow a career here.
0: Well, let's hope examples like that can help us correct course here. Linda Robertson writes for the Miami Herald. Linda, always a pleasure, thanks. Thank you. Still to come, are human rights in Latin America sliding back to the bad old days? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We hear a lot these days about the backsliding of democracy in Latin America. It's a historically recurring problem that too many people here are all too familiar with. With it comes the backsliding of human rights in the region. Lately, that scourge has been alarming, especially in Venezuela on the left and on the right, Guatemala. In Venezuela, President Nicolás Maduro's dictatorial socialist regime is on a repression spree these days, jailing political opponents and dissidents, most notably eminent human rights activist Rocio San Miguel, whose arrest has caused international outcry. In Guatemala, respected newspaper publisher and investigative journalist José Rubén Zamora has been sitting in jail for 18 months, on charges so questionable that a judge overturned his conviction last fall and ordered a new trial which began this week joining me now here in the uh, is Zamora's son Jose Carlos Zamora along with us here in the studio is Maria Alejandra Marquez she heads the nonprofit Venezuela Asset Recovery Initiative or Inrav which watchdogs the Venezuelan regime's corruption and human rights abuses thanks very much to both of you for being here
6: Hi, team. Thank you
0: for having me. Hi, team. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Are you concerned that human rights are eroding again in Latin America? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Jose, I want to start with you and ask you to remind our listeners who your father, Jose Ruben Zamora, is and why he's been such an important figure for Guatemala's democracy.
5: Uh, Thank you, Tim. Well, my father is a a journalist. Uh, He's the founder of of three newspapers in Guatemala, Uh, the latest one being uh, called El Periódico. That's the the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Uh, That newspaper had been running for 27 years. Uh, Throughout his career in journalism of over 30 years, he has been, like, he basically brought investigative journalism to Guatemala. And he has denounced and published the the largest investigations on governmental corruption and organized crime and abuses of power over the last 30 years and those included some stories that uh, led to uh, the imprisonment of uh, public officials and even a president and vice president and and some cabinet members right and and most recently uh, with the previous administration of Alejandro Yamatei which just ended in January yeah uh, d- during his first uh, 144 uh, weeks in, in in government el periódico published 104 stories of corruption within right. his administration. And so many people feel that in retribution, the administration of
0: Giamaté and that right wing uh, group of ruling elite in Guatemala, often known as El Pacto de los Corruptos, or the Pact of the Corrupt, brought charges against your father. As I said, that even judges now in Guatemala feel are very questionable that he was laundering money, etc. Um, uh, but as I said, he's he's now been in jail for um for for 18 months do you feel uh as his retrial started this week do you feel that uh confident that he'll be acquitted
5: this time of those controversial charges well uh, he's he's innocent uh, this was a fabricated case uh, he had to go through a process where they violated all of his rights uh and as long as the case is in the hands of uh, impartial judges that apply the law he will be absolved and free uh, freed and and i am and we are all certain that that will eventually happen uh, the only issue is that that part of the corrupt is still there uh, yeah. uh, Within the government, so we have a new administration, the one. Right. New yeah, we need
0: we need to point out that the the uh, and the Pacto de Corrupos are actually out of power now, after a reformer candidate, uh, Bernardo Arevalo, won the presidency and and took office last last month. So yeah, so there is there is some hope there, uh, as you point out. Uh, yes. Mar- Maria Alejandra Marquez, I want to pivot here from the right-wing human rights abuses we see we have been seeing in Guatemala in recent years to the left-wing repression we're seeing in recent weeks mm-hmm. in Venezuela. As I mentioned, prominent human rights activist Rocio San Miguel was arrested for taking part in a supposed conspiracy to assassinate President Nicolás Maduro. Given her history as a proponent of nonviolent resistance, those mm-hmm. charges against her seem far-fetched, to say the least. What does this say about what's happening with the Maduro regime at this moment?
6: Yeah, I think um, Maduro's government, as as, as any you know uh, dictatorship they thrive on on, uh, um, making people fear and uh, because there is an upcoming election with increasing international pressure Mm -hmm. they want to make sure that voices that are not silenced directly are afraid to talk
0: right a lot of international pressure on the the venezuelan regime to hold fair and free presidential elections Mm -hmm. this year the maduro regime is obviously resisting Mm -hmm. that and and but because of that pressure there he's the regime is lashing out now, right? Yes.
6: Mm. Well, they've been actually uh, preparing for this. Uh, they've been trying to pass a new law since last year. It's called uh, the. Uh, it's normally called the anti NGO law, mm-hmm. but it's go- in English it would be uh, a bill on oversight, regulation, regulation, action, and financing of NGOs, and uh, it's approved in in the first round, and uh, that basically the list of requirements to register and to be a civil society organization in Venezuela is so large that it will render every civil society organization outside of the law.
0: Right. So, and this is something we've also seen in Nicaragua uh, mm-hmm. recently. I mean, just throwing out all 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 of these uh, NGOs who... Who, who address things like human rights. Yeah, I mean, so and, that's...
6: and in the civic space in Venezuela, you have people working in infant malnutrition, you have people working in, uh, right. in violence against women, but uh, it silences them all the same. You don't mm-hmm. have to be involved in political activism. Right, mm-hmm. now,
0: and just this week, We saw that another prominent dissident, former Venezuela Army officer Ronald Ojeda, Mm -hmm. was kidnapped in Chile where he'd been given political asylum. Mm -hmm. And Chilean authorities are now, excuse me, are not discounting the theory that Venezuelan regime agents were responsible for Ojeda's abduction. Is that sending a chill through the Venezuelan exile community community? even here in South Florida?
6: Oh, of course, I mean, what happens, actually this is not the first time this happens. Uh, I I would say about 10 years ago, uh, there was a a, a former ally of Chavez who was uh, living in Panama, and he was Mm -hmm. snatched from uh, with uh, political uh, police Mm -hmm. from Panama and taken uh, into Venezuela, so this is not new. Right, but this is
0: the kind of thing we often, we're used to hearing about with with Russia, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. and and now we're hearing about it uh, with Venezuela. Um, we have. Uh, do we still have Pablo on the line? Uh, Pablo, uh, you are also a Venezuelan American, uh, and you've got uh, some uh, perspective here. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Uh,
3: thank you for having me, and um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your uh, to your. Dad. And I say, I should say, you're
0: calling us from Aventura, right?
3: Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, I, I just wanted to to uh, uh, offer a, a comment, and I'll take uh, you know the, the answer off the air, but. I see many of the efforts of, of uh, uh, organizations and, and, and family involved in these matters in basically having free elections and, and changing the presidents. But if you go back to the history of Venezuela, you can actually trace the breaking point when Chavez uh, had a, um, a decision of the Supreme Court contrary to his interest, and then he just basically decided to tank the 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 Venezuelan Supreme Court with many justices that were right uh, uh, allies of the government. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. to make an analogy, you know, how can you have a fair uh, game if if the rules change and the arbiter is is on one side? Right, but that's
0: that that yeah. That, no, that that that's a great point, and I should say that you know that's it's not just Venezuela, but let's return to Guatemala, where that is off. That that kind of judicial abuse is also uh, rampant. Jose, your father, as I said, has been sitting in the Mariscal Zavala military prison in Guatemala for eighteen months now, but to many there and around the world, he's a martyr of sorts for the cause of human rights in Latin America. And so I wanted to ask you. Do you think that his ordeal helped bring the world's attention to the abuses of that pact of the corrupt in Guatemala, which led to the international pressure to make that ruling elite last month finally accept the presidential election victory of Bernardo Arevalo, a reformer who campaigned against corruption? I mean, is there a silver lining
5: there, uh, can we say? I think I think in in now in some ways it has uh, he has been in in, in prison for uh, without uh, being convicted for 474 days like he's been basically being held hostage by the previous administration. Uh, I think it led it, it was part of what led to the, the what Guatemala, what Guatemala is living right now. But there is still. A struggle, and, and it mm-hmm. is an over. Uh, this uh, this uh, pact of the corrupt still has power over the judiciary, over or the public ministry, over Congress. So there's still a, a big uh, struggle, internal struggle going on right now. And also, the other thing I want I would like to add uh, is that what we see in uh, in the entire region is is a regression, right? The democratic yeah. regression, and it really. I think the only common denominator, like all of these repressive uh, personalities and and dictators, they try to use um, ideological um, uh, beliefs to 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 get into power, but they really don't don't believe in anything other than corruption. Or just
0: just and and staying in power, right? Exactly. They right. are right.
5: their only common denominator is. Uh, is power corruption abuse and repression right so right. Mm-hmm. it's like, it's exactly the same in venezuela in nicaragua in guatemala even right. in el Salvador, right right it's just it's abuse Political- of Political science
0: is called that horseshoe theory, that at the end of the day, the left wing and the right wing really aren't that very different in that regard. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. I'm talking with Jose Carlos Zamora, son of jailed Guatemalan journalist Jose Ruben Zamora, and with Venezuelan expat community leader Maria Alejandra Marquez about the eroding human rights situation in Latin America. Maria Alejandra, let me ask you a similar question then. Um, Will the arrest of a dissident as globally admired as Rocio San Miguel Perhaps bring more international pressure on Venezuela's regime, not just to hold, not just to free her, but to hold those free and fair presidential elections later this year that we were talking about. Yeah, one,
6: one should hope so. Uh, it's sad that that has to be the price. Yeah. But I have to say to the comment of Pablo that it's easy to be discouraged, of course, because you have a government with absolute power, where no separation of powers and and leaves the citizen and the individual uh, in complete um, vulnerability. But I think what uh, at this moment, there are about 200 civil society organizations working in different areas in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that every space, every democratic space have to be fought for. You cannot just give them, uh, give those spaces. You cannot surrender. And I think uh, the detention of Rocio San Miguel is a testament of brave Venezuelans that are working on the ground to uh, make that aid that we sent from here actually have some effect there. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we just think it's not worth it, yeah. uh, a lot of Venezuelans will suffer.
0: Jose, in just the 30 seconds we have left, very briefly, do if your father is freed, what kind of effect do you think that that could have on Latin America as, as a whole in terms of improving the human rights
5: situation in the region? Well, I, I think it's just a, a sign of, of hope, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen a, a, like a really... Process of regression over the last decade. So, so there is yeah. there is hope there.
0: I, I'm sorry. Uh, unfortunately, Jose Carlos, we have to uh, leave it there. I, I apologize. Maria Alejandra Marquez heads the nonprofit Venezuelan regime watchdog INRAV. Jose Carlos Amora is the son of jailed Guatemalan journalist Jose Rubén Zamora. Thanks very much to you both. Y suerte. Thank you, team. Thank, Thank, Thank you both. You. Finally, on the roundup, spring break bombshell. You may have heard that in order to dissuade rowdy spring breakers from invading Miami Beach this year, the city was going to charge an exorbitant flat rate of $100 to park in its public garages during the second and third weekends of March. Well, this week, the Miami Beach City Commission voted to get even tougher. During those peak spring break weekends, they'll close those garages completely to visitors, allowing only local residents and employees to use them. Draconian? Draconian? maybe. But the fact that the measure passed the commission by a five to one vote indicates how exasperated Miami Beach is with spring break. As Commissioner David Suarez said, we really mean it this time. But it also reflects how all of South Florida's love affair with spring breakers seems to have ended. And we plan to explore that divorce among other spring break issues on next week's South Florida Roundup. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Messi, Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.